From Share Profits, brought to you from Wales by 30 Yards, this is episode two of the Share Profits radio show. Here's your host, Tom Winifred. Hi, this is indeed Tom Winifrith, and welcome to the second edition of Share Profits Radio, a podcast brought to you from Wales, albeit only by 30 yards, but from Wales nonetheless. Thank you for the kind comments which uh, many of you sent me about the first podcast. Uh, amazed so many of you managed to listen to all two hours of it and glad you enjoyed it. Thank you also to the couple of uh, abusive comments received. Always enjoyable to get feedback, uh, whatever you say. This podcast is a little bit shorter, but it's still pretty long. I did two interviews, uh, one with Lucian Myers, first up at the well-known Bear Raider, and we talked about a range of subjects. The second with Chris Bailey, a man who used to be a highly successful city fund manager, uh, but because he didn't take cocaine, drink vast amounts, uh, engage in group drink and silly managerial policies, he decided it wasn't the place for him. These days he's a consultant, a writer, a broadcaster, got some amazing thought processes and opinions and i'm sure you'll enjoy the interview with chris later there is no interview with a ceo in today's podcast i will do them from time to time but not every week it's not our business model Uh, these podcasts exist thanks to the kind sponsorship of various organizations Uh, once again this week our sponsor is riverfork global capital which is the leading provider of funding to junior listed companies on the A market and the standard list. Riverfork provides equity and debt funding for a range of purposes, uh, acquisition finance, working capital, bridging to cash flow events, and augmenting placings. It doesn't just do what you might term death spirals, but aren't really. Uh, It does loans, asset-backed loans, convertible debt, royalty, and also straight equity financings. Uh, if you want to know more about what Riverfort does, if you're a CEO or an FD of an AIM-listed company, uh, it's doing a series of masterclasses, both online and face-to-face, over the summer. If you want more information, contact info at riverfortcapital.com. So thank you to Riverfort for sponsoring uh, this podcast. Uh, other podcasts have a business model which requires them to get CEOs in. You know the format. Uh, the CEO's company uh, pays an organization like Vox Markets uh, a, a rather large fee. And in return, Justin the Clown does an interview where he asks really soft questions. Why are your shares so cheap? Oh, when do you think they're going to start going up? What are the opportunities for your company? And is it true uh, that you, Mr. CEO, have an enormous schlonger? Those sort of questions. Doesn't ask any nasty questions. Ooh, your balance sheet looks a bit thin. You're going to have to have a placing, aren't you? Isn't that RNS you issued a few months ago been proved to be completely untrue? Do you know what IFRS is and why aren't your accounts compliant? Those sort of questions are never going to get asked. Uh, but that's the business model of those podcasts. So I'm delighted that I can have on CEOs who I think are interesting. And also I want to go CEOs on and give them a hard time. 
In that vein, this weekend, I tried to persuade Neil Ricketts of Vasarian to do an interview with me. Neil's got time to do an interview with Justin the Clown about once a fortnight. He's always doing soft, paid-for interviews. And Neil uh, prevaricated for a long time, and eventually he suggested that he doesn't want to do an interview with me, uh, but how about I come and do a charity event with him? The format of that would be that the sort of morons who own Vasarian and go onto bulletin boards and Twitter to accuse me of being a paedophile, a criminal, a failed fund manager, etc., etc., because I have the temerity to question the value of their investment, uh, uh, they would pay for tickets where Neil and myself would debate with an impartial uh, a person in the middle, uh, uh, obviously chosen by Neil. There would have been no recording of the event, so no one would know what happened, and everyone in the room would have a closed room in mind anyway, since they're the sort of morons who enjoy calling me a paedophile. Uh, the, would this, the event would thus be completely pointless. I might raise, it might raise a few quid for charity, but uh, compared to the amounts that Mr. Uh, uh, Ricketts has made from his regular share sales from Visarian, is peanuts. Frankly, it would have raised peanuts compared to the amount that I raise for woodlarks each year with my charity walks or my personal donations. So it's just a smokescreen. It would have achieved nothing. What Mr. Ricketts is clearly terrified of is recording an interview with someone who is going to ask him some very, very tough questions, an interview which would go out in a public format, uh, and which would mean that everybody would be able to judge him by his inability to answer those hard questions. Uh, his cowardice, uh, his ways of trying to dodge the issue, uh, uh, and his, frankly, his downright smears uh, on this website, uh, suggesting somehow that we were tax evaders. Oh, it was pathetic. Uh, it was all part of the fact that Neil Ricketts is terrified of doing an interview. So uh, uh, there is no CEO interview this week. Uh, however, uh, the absence of Mr. Ricketts should allow you to draw, yes, another one of your own conclusions about the valuation of his company, Visarian. There may well be more on Visarian without the benefit of an interview with Mr. Ricketts in future editions. Anyhow, to the today's show. Now, my first guest today is Lucian Myers, uh, godfather of my son Joshua, the bard of the bowling, infamous bear raider, uh, a well-known short seller, and a writer on share profits, amongst other things. Uh, Lucian, uh, how do you enjoy being trolled by the sort of morons who used to own Quindell and now own shares in Vasarian? I don't think I am trolled, am I? I don't really say much about Versarium, but if I am... I do cartoons of you being thrown <laughs> to the lions. Oh, I rather like and... that. I, I quite approve of the, the, that cartoon fellow. I think they're, they're quite good, those cartoons. But uh, no, it doesn't bother me at all. I mean... Um, you Like me, you are accused of being a paedophile and a, a criminal and uh, you're only talking your own book and you come up with fake news... And you're discredited and you always get it wrong anyway. And you're just a failed stockbroker, yada, yada, yada. 
Well, well I don't you. really. That I don't really mind. I don't. I hadn't, to be honest, I haven't read any of that. But perhaps I'm reading the wrong social media channels. But no, it doesn't bother me at all. I mean, people are entitled to their opinion. I mean, I think being called a paedophile is a bit rich. But uh, no, I. You know, you can't really do this game in smaller companies without. Uh, putting up with this kind of stuff and uh, it doesn't really bother me at all in fact i think it rather encourages me i think because if people really are going to waste time doing that kind of thing it means that you're probably on the right track doesn't it well but, uh, you're suggesting that um if, uh, if if people honestly think that going around uh, uh calling uh, uh short sellers pedophiles and suggesting they're all having homosexual relationships with each other <laughs> not the homosexuality pedophilia are the same i stress but uh, if they do all that that perhaps they're, they're not very bright and you're up against uh, a, a pretty thick shareholder list well i i'm not sure about that i mean it shows that they're pretty angry but whether they're bright or not is uh, another matter i mean what i i've often observed in investing is that a lot of people who make incredibly stupid decisions or um, um, are in fact quite intelligent people in whatever walk of life they happen to be in. I mean, it's a mem amazing the number of kind of engineers or, you know, people who are very good at whatever they happen to do just have complete blind spots when it when it comes to uh, investing. Um, and falling so, in love with, uh, with, with ludicrous shares. Yes, yes. But so, I mean, I, one doesn't know a lot of these people, but when you... Uh, you know, to get the kind of criticism you're talking about, or people, you know, slagging each other off, or suddenly becoming instant experts on these things. Um, it's very difficult that you quite often you think from from what they're saying, or from the investment decisions that they're making, that they must be very stupid. And then you find out that the people they're, you know, a lot of these guys are, or a fair number of these guys are, in fact, you know, pretty good at whatever they do and whatever their day job is uh, and so good family men you know very fond of the the family labrador pillars of the local church it's just when they get online they fall in love with grotesque promotes and think anyone who questions them is a pedophile well i think social media certainly or quite often brings the worst out of people i mean Guys, if you if you meet them in a room, who'd probably be very polite with the anonymity or the kind of uh, you know distance of being able to say whatever you like, you know, in on your own computer. People tend to be a lot more both bulls and bears. I'm not saying it's a um, you know the other side of whatever I do. There are a lot of very rude bears, but people just sort of lose all kind of decorum and manners, or often they do on these. On, on on the kind of stocks where there's a bit of a you know bull bear tug tug of war you know tesla that kind of thing i mean if you look at the you know tesla q and uh, uh, uh twitter feed against the bulls it gets really very nasty indeed and i'm that that's an example of you know high profile big one but once you get down to these smaller small cap uk stocks you get a lot of that as well but no it doesn't really bother me and i don't spend too much time worrying about it or looking at it really but as i said you know if if you have a lot of people if, if you're say short a stock and you notice that it's top of the bulletin board uh list of comments uh it's and the most are I mean, do you remember Gulf, Keystone, Petroleum, UK oil and gas, all these things that people talk about all the time and, and are predominantly bullish? I mean, if you're a bear, that's a pretty good sign. Yeah. 
We're going to come to one of those in a little while. Uh, it strikes me that being a bear at the moment is rather difficult. Uh, you have stocks with absolutely zero asset backing, zero earnings, uh, clearly, which have enormous problems with telling the truth and following the basic laws of a stock regulated stock market. And you would have thought in normal circumstances they would be tanking. But uh, yeah, au contraire, <laughs> they're going through the roof. Yes, I, I I think it is tough at the moment, bigger. But I mean, basically, to be to you know, if you want to be, to to be absolutely nailed on on a bear, for instance, I mean, at the moment, the the, the only no brainer I can think of at the moment is Thomas Cook, i.e., a company that's pretty much said it's bust. Everyone knows it's bust, and it's bust. And guess what? You can't get any borrow on the stock. So, the only stocks that you want to short at the moment, which are just slam dunk broke and that's the only thing now really where you can say right this is the time to short it is when you can tell when they're going to run out of cash they've said they're going to run out of cash and uh it's just they've said that, they've said that in, in a best case scenario investors are going to be diluted to buggery i mean yeah, not, there, not but, quite using there, those words you, but you can go ahead but other stuff like i mean take for instance purple bricks or a lot of these stocks that uh, I just have gone down quite a bit and you think, you know, is it worth moving in for the kill? I actually closed my bear on purple bricks. Having said, you know, I think it'll go to 50p. It hasn't gone to 50p. I closed it at just under a quid because these things, you know, could just stay. But once the damage has been done, you know, you made a bit of money on it. I mean, in a normal market, you'd wait and move in for the kill and maybe even press it at a pound. But uh, in this sort of market, as I say, unless a company you can see right on such and such a day or such and such a month, they're going to run out of money and go bust. Then, you know, you ha you have to have a pretty good reason for for just shorting it after after a reasonable fall, and and you know it, it being proven to be a fraud or it being proven to be overvalued or well, it, it's not good enough in a straight up bull market. I mean, are we in a straight it, up? Are we in a straight up bull market? Well, of course we are. I mean. Yes, we are. What we're within a whisker of an all-time high. Every single dip we've had, uh, eighteen and nineteen, uh, you've had a sort of V-shaped rally straight away, and then new highs. So yes, we are. Still oh, that great chartist Donald Trump has, has got it right with uh, his, his uh, advice to buy buy the. Uh, I'm not sure if you used the F word, but BTFD. Absolutely. Well, Donald Trump measures success by the level of the stock market. So, I mean, I'm talking about the headline indices and the main stocks. I mean, some guys would argue that the uh, um, who is it? Druckenmiller or someone says the market actually peaked in the middle of I think he, said, he calls it the guts of the market peaked in uh, early 2018. And by that, he means the you know smaller companies and the mid caps and and because the indices are it's not very many stocks that are driving it higher but in terms of uh general direction and uh, and sort of bullish sentiment yeah i think we are pretty pretty high because most people are concentrated in a fairly small numbers of stocks what but i'm getting it, confused about though is, is is we you and i could both say if we look at the overall market the uh, uh multiple of earnings the pe is a sort of crude basic measure, is the sort of P you'd expect pretty early in the recovery cycle, part of a cycle, not 10 years uh, into the recovery, when global economic growth is clearly slowing down. And indeed, we're now being told that interest rates in America are going to have to be cut. 
and I suspect they're going to have to be cut elsewhere as well in order to stop the economies of the world going into recession. So I know, it's, corporate it's, it's, earnings growth is going to be uh, pretty pedestrian uh, uh, for the next 12 months. And I thought there are going to be a lot more a lot more surprises on the downside than the upside. And yet we have stocks trading on ludicrous PEs. Yeah, and, and it's amazing how much of this market rally has can be entirely put down to these crazy share buybacks that everybody's been doing, particularly in the US and, and quite a bit here. I mean, I, I read somewhere the statistic is unbelievable. Of, for instance, you know, how much in percentage of the S&P gain since January of 2018 can be um, ascribed directly to share buybacks. You're talking about, um, you know, over 50 percent which is unbelievable. So it's not like, you know, the economy is growing by these companies uh, doing very well. It's just the earnings per share are going up because shares are being bought back uh, for zero in, you know, they're borrowing money at, for, for nothing and buying back the, uh, shares at, far, you know, at, at ridiculous levels. But so, that, that is, I mean, there are cases when share buybacks could be justified uh, again, at the depths of a recession, exactly. if you have got if you've got a, a company, your company's trading on five times earnings and you're drowning yeah. in cash, then go ahead and buy back. Yeah, or, or but these companies you, you aren't trading but... at a discount to NAV or something like that. But I mean, but buying, uh, but, but buying your shares simply because you can increase the um, earnings per share in order to pay yourself a huge bonus. I mean, it's completely crazy. It's one of the craziest things that's happening at the moment. And uh, it, 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 it's sort of self-fulfilling. The mar You know, the more you do it, the more the market goes up. But, you know, sooner or later it stops. But, and you know, of course it does, it does stop. stop when at a certain stage you find these companies are drowning in debt. Yeah. And even if interest rates stay at diddly squat, uh, yeah. if you if if their underlying trading performance of the businesses, which yeah. have been starved of capital investment because companies aren't building new factories or no, they're just developing new products. Stock. They're just buying yeah. back their stock. At a certain stage, you get shocks at the sales and earnings level, and suddenly the debt becomes unmanageable. And yeah. the folly of this uh, becomes apparent to all. Well, there'll be a lot of that when the recession arrives. Um, when, when it arrives is another matter. But I mean, you know, it's got, you've got to have a recession in the next couple of years, haven't you? I mean, people were saying Why? tail end of this year. Why? Why? Because recessions happen. People haven't kind of checked. This modern monetary theory, which in my opinion is ridiculous, has not uh, cured the boom and bust cycle. You know, we've had it for 3,000 years and, and we haven't just ca cancelled recessions since 2008. You know, we, you, you just get recessions. They happen. And uh, what I mean, we've had the longest period of growth now for what very long time, um, albeit fairly anemic growth fueled by things we've been talking about. But you know, sooner or later you get a recession, and when you get a recession and earnings start falling, and you know you played the card of buying back stock, then as you say, even without a rise in interest rates, which looks extremely uh, likely that we're going to have no no rises anytime soon. You're going to start having companies running into trouble. I mean, the corporate debt is just unbelievable at the moment. I mean, we, we the amount of I've read somewhere about all this junk 
bonds that are trading with negative interest rates. I mean, it's just completely topsy-turvy. You can't explain it. It's beyond kind of parody. I mean, you're, you're, you're paying money by be... debt in a, in a company who's who's has a junk credit rating. I mean, how, how is that possible? Um, well, I, I'm not clever enough to understand these things, but is it not possible that it will be different this time, Lucien? That well, somehow that we will it, it will be different that if there is any sort of recession, then we'll just get, uh, you know, go back to negative interest rates. You could have, and it's been suggested that central banks will start buying back equities. Mm. Well, they already have in Switzerland and Japan. Yeah, so you get that more widespread. The government goes in and, and borrows more money to buy equities. Well, that is the basis of MMT, is that it is different this time. And we've reached a whole new paradigm with uh, uh, the new economy. And low interest rates are a thing to stay, and possibly even negative interest rates. And that printing money is fine. But I, I, I don't think it... I, I, to me, it's completely crazy. I may be wrong, but... I don't think, um, you know, if printing money was such a good idea, why weren't we doing it, you know, 2,000 years ago? And uh, Well, with the, we were, actually, Lucien. Um, well, the yeah, amount but, of okay, silver in Roman we, coins we, uh, got less and less and less and less, and, less, and, less and it got a lot of inflation. It did happen 2,000 years ago. Right. Sorry, well, I'll rephrase that. Why, why, why didn't it work 2,000 years ago? Why didn't it work for 2,000 years is what I'm trying to say. Yes. Yes, indeed. It's ended in disaster, massive uh, um, inflation and uh, debasing of currencies and all the rest of it. So um, what I'm trying to say is why suddenly this time is it perfectly all right and, it, and it's fine? I mean, to me, that's nonsense. But anyway, isn't the one point about that, Lucy, is that you and I are actually quite old. Uh, I mean, it's a horrible thought, but we are at the wrong side of 50. So we can remember the excesses of the last real boom, the dot-com boom, and how it all ended in tears. But the vast majority of market participants cannot remember that. Yeah, but if you think about we, it... We can actually... I, I can remember the craziness standing in the rain outside the offices of the fraudulent dot-com that I worked for and actually did try to whistleblow against. Uh, uh, we're standing in there in the rain, talking to our, our good friend, uh, Evil Knievel, um, and uh, just discussing about how insane everything was. And he, we could agreed that we couldn't put a finger on why it would end, but agreed that it had to end, but we couldn't see it ending immediately. And of course, it, it did end pretty soon. But there were a lot of people who really believed it was different this time. Yeah, but they always do at the top of markets. So you think, well, I, I, I hate to say it, Lucien, but you have been telling me that we are uh, at the top of market for quite some time. Yes, I know I have. Um, but, You'll be right. Uh, you will be right soon. Or well, what, what I didn't understand and what a lot of people, I think, didn't understand. I mean, a lot of people since 2008 have said this is crazy. And I think that the problems of 2008 have not really been solved. And uh, that so the next time that we get a we get a sell off, it is going to not just pay for the current excesses, but pay for the excesses of pre-2008, which, which were never really sorted out. There was a perfect opportunity to sort everything out, and it hasn't been sorted out. So 
Um, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a perma bear. There's always something to do in the market, both long and short, but certainly being predominantly short, you know, at the moment, there's not a, there's not a great deal to do. And uh, is it worth going plunging in on the long side to uh, the equity market? But I mean, the UK is slightly different because I think that's a bit more tempting with some of the UK names because of Brexit. But I mean, the the US market, which is what I look at quite a lot. I mean, you know, it's not really the time to be piling in, is it? And, uh, no, or, or is, to... is the fundamental problem uh, that we have a world where individuals, corporations and governments are drowning in debt? And the uh, growth that we have seen or recovery we've seen since 2008 has just been all of these people taking on more debt. Yeah. And that a certain what should have happened in 2008 was a whole load of institutions, some governments and a lot of individuals going bankrupt. But it didn't. That didn't happen. Everyone was bailed out. Well, except for Lehman. Yeah. And then everyone says that Lehman should have been bailed out. It would have solved a lot of problems. But I mean, to be, to, to be honest, macro is not really my thing. It just does my head in. I mean, as a, as a bear, you've got to wake up every morning and expect the market to be up 100 points and think, you know, am I going to short this stock with the market up against me 100 points every day, the general market? That's the kind of attitude you've got to have. And uh, on the flip side to that is if you think you're at the top of the market, uh, and you want to buy a stock, you've got you've got to think the, the other way. You've got to think, do I want to buy this stock with the market going against me, i.e. going down 50, 100 points every day? And and, and, and just get rid of that. You know, I, I, I like looking at individual stocks. Macro is great fun, but I don't think anyone really knows what they're talking about on macro. All these people talking about bond yields and, you know, whether the US dollar and, you know, when's the next recession going to happen? This is all fun to speculate on it. But, you know, if you've got to make a living or want to invest successfully, you've got to just look at individual names, I think. Obviously, if you're predominantly long and you've got the tailwind of a of a straight up market, that's great. And if you're predominantly short and you get a um, big correction, that's great. But what you've got to be doing really is looking in detail at individual names and uh, working out whether they're worth buying or whether they're worth selling or whether you just want to leave them alone. And that's what okay, I... Well, okay, well, let's look at one individual name. And we said that Thomas Cook was, if one was able to obtain borrow, the easiest slam dunk short. Yeah. Something which I don't understand why it's not the second easiest slam dunk short is Tesla. In that the company is run by a, a proven liar, um, I would argue a fraudster, mm. uh, on the basis that he broke securities laws and lied and that sort of thing. Uh, it's a company with a uh, product which seems unable to generate cash. Uh, its accounts are obviously incredibly aggressive, uh, not to say misleading. The company uh, is, has got too much debt. It's never going to generate a cent in profit. Um, and uh, it seems to be valued still at more than, uh, you know, way more than conventional makers of cars who do actually make a profit. Mm. Well, uh, te Tesla, why is Tesla not worth zero? I don't know. Well, it is worth zero. <laughs> why, why isn't the market saying it's worth zero? I, I think with Tesla, it's a it's a outlier. I mean, it's probably the most, you know, talked about and discussed and uh, prominent stock there is. I think it's it's got a it's ah oh, don't get me onto Tesla. I mean, t Tesla 
it's a matter of time on Tesla. But you know, the kind of market we're in, the kind of people who back Tesla, the, uh, the just the whole aura around Tesla makes it impossible to analyze. And you know, books will be written about it, films will be made about it. It's unlike any other stock that I've ever really come across. I mean, it just defies any kind of uh, rational explanation. And uh, I think quite a lot of it, you say we're old, is that, you know, the millennials have a slightly different um, attitude to investment. It's very easy to sort of criticize it, but you're up against a completely different mindset. I mean, apparently... Well, on, they on, think it's okay to commit fraud, to lie, yeah, cheat, Yeah, well, they're not so... Burn you know, cash. I think the attitude would be, well, I mean, it's like people who like Donald Trump, you know, with Elon Musk, okay, you know, the guy's trying to save the planet, you know, okay, so he told a lie, you know, he said there was, uh, um, you know, a, a, he had funding secured to take over the company, but, you know, the guy's doing good, give him a break, you know, as long as, you know, make it till you fake it kind of thing, sorry, fake it till you make it, <laughs> uh, make it till you fake it. Fake it till you make it. Everything will be fine. And, uh, you know, this is really important. We've all got to go green. And there's, there's no sort of analysis. It's just a sort of general attitude. I mean, I, 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 the same things were, I was interesting. I was listening to a programme about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. And people were saying exactly the same sort of things. And in her case, of course, yeah. it wasn't that she was saving the planet and we should all be bloody green. Uh, it was, she's a woman in Silicon Valley. And, uh, you know, attacking her just shows you're a complete sexist. And uh, we've got to support more women entrepreneurs. And so what she took a couple of chances, but she was flying the flag for women entrepreneurs. Well, yeah, I think there's a bit more to it than that. She, mean, she was a fraudster, obviously. But she was very you. persuasive and, and a lot of people fell for it, hook, line and sinker. And, and this is the other thing. I think the great lesson to that is that that, that all these people who fell for it, um, from uh, Rupert Murdoch and all those top brass generals and great fund managers, I mean, it just shows that one shouldn't be frightened by, a say, going against a company that has a, a, a shareholders like that. Because, you know, a lot of these so-called experts get fooled by a pretty straight and obvious con, such as she was perpetrating, all the time. So... You know, if you think, right, I'm going to be short this company, you say, oh, my God, you know, so-and-so's on the share register. Well, don't worry about it. You know, just I think people should have their own opinions and realise that the so-called experts make horrendous howlers, just like all the rest of us. And I've long since given up worrying about, you know, who's on the, you know, if so-and-so's got a great chunk of stock that you want to be short of. Um, it, it just doesn't matter. You know, you do your own work, and if you think the things, the, the, the things rubbish, then don't worry that somebody else who's got, you know, a huge amount of, say, Rupert Murdoch or someone else like that is on the register because these guys make mistakes. So with with um, uh, Tesla, you are short. I'm short small on Tesla. I mean, I last year I was just sort of getting completely obsessed by Tesla. I, I, I'm still short small. The numbers are on Wednesday, aren't they? Um, they'll make a loss, but they'll try and. Uh, you see, so the thing is, you know, the, the fact is, production. We've seen the numbers have, has gone up a lot from the disastrous Q1. They'll still be lower than Q4. So it all depends on the average selling price of the car. So, you know, there was quite a big loss penciled in. Now, if it comes in a bit smaller, the loss, then you, know, you might see the market rally. I mean, it's that crazy. The fact is that, they're, they're, you know, 
on a, what they call a good quarter compared, obviously, compared to Q1, or much better than people are expecting. They're going to lose more money probably than they lost in Q1. So the, the, the accounting is so riddled with kind of tricks and chicanery. And the people who follow Tesla are sort of bamboozled by Musk into thinking metrics matter, which just don't matter. I mean, you know, you, he could sell millions, trillions of cars if he if he sells them at a low low enough price, it's just not relevant. And then there's this whole uh, full um, self driving rubbish that I you know he's saying your car will appreciate if you buy it now because you know next year it'll be autonomous and you can lie in bed while it's careering around the city in a taxi. <laughs> I mean it's completely mad, but that that's the world we live in. But all so you know is that sooner or later, when the people will stop lending Tesla money or buying its equity. Um, then the 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 the, the uh, show stops. But however useless a company is, if people are prepared to keep financing it, you know it's not that it can keep on going until until they think, hang on a minute, you know we're not going to get our money back. And mm. that that uh, um, point is, I mean, I said and I was wrong. I think that Tesla's going to be under a hundred bucks by Christmas. It's, there's still a chance. Um, because I suspect that Q3 will be pretty terrible. In fact, I, I think this quarter is going to be pretty terrible. But, uh, you know, I think when Tesla does go, it'll be very quick, very savage and very sudden. I mean, I think it could just, you know, you'll wake up one morning and uh, and the whole the, the, the whole show has sort of gone off the road. So uh, that that's why I like to always have some sort of position in it. But you know, it's probably better now to wait until the middle of next quarter to really to put a bigger position on and see what see what's happening. But you know, God knows what'll happen. It's had a hell of a rally. I mean, it got down to what one seventy eight. It's now what are they now two fifty something. Um, so it's had a stonking rally since the Q one numbers came out. But um, God knows what'll happen on Wednesday. I don't. I, I suspect that probably not very much. Um, but, but you're happy to take that as a core, a core short, event, probably, and it'll go just like that. So you'd be pretty sick if you'd been trying to trade it and thought, oh, I'll just close them for a week or two and then bang. So okay, well let's look at just a couple of others which uh, you been short. Are you still short of Woodford Patient Capital Trust? Yes, and again, I mean, I'm short of um, Thomas Cook as well, but the but the. I mean, not in huge quantities because the borrows just dried up. I mean, after Thomas Cook. I would say that Woodford Patient Capital Trust is is a um, that absolutely nailed on to, to short at. at, at there, was, there was a time when having Neil Woodford on your shareholder register, you thought, "Oh, jeepers, that's a that's a that's a uh, you don't want to bet against Woodford." Yeah, it's almost as bad as betting against Warren Buffett. Um, no, I think I think what people haven't really realised about well, I mean, obviously people. He's been everybody. You, everybody's been all over Woodford, but I don't think people have some worse before uh, others. Uh, yeah, but what, what I I haven't seen, you know, I've seen people like Money Week saying, oh, you know, it might start looking interesting when it's at a forty percent discount to NAV. The, people don't realise just how completely wrong this NAV business is. I mean, when you can lose, which. Uh, Woodford has managed to do on quoted companies like uh, AA Group and uh, Keir Group, and you know big chunky companies. He's lost between sort of seventy and eight, uh, and ninety uh, percent uh, on. 
you know, it, and averaging up and all the rest of it. The the difficulty, the, what in in these um, private non quoted companies, you know, they they're either worth what you've last put into them, or the, or they in more cases than not, I would say they are worth zero. It's not like oh, it reaches a point where. Um, where, where vulture funds will come in and pick them up. These companies have intrinsic values, a lot of them, of zero. And he seems to have chosen a couple of frauds as well. I think that AI inventory thing. So if you take his top five unquoted holdings, say, and mark four of them to zero, in both in the equity income fund and patient capital, that is the sort of sums you should be doing. And throw it, th you know, to be on the safe side. And that if you're the bank, um, you'd start getting whatever they say about the overdraft being fine until what the end of the year or something. I mean, the banks are sitting there thinking, oh, you know, assets of 700 million or whatever it is that, you know, we'll get the 150 million back, no problem at all. Well, there could easily be a big problem them even covering the bank loan. Because as I think you said on a podcast, was it today or yesterday? I mean, once Woodford is cornerstoning all these investment walks away. Nobody else is going to want to come in. And if they do want to come in, they're not going to pay anything like what? Yeah, what? you see, I, I, I disagree with the zeros. I mean, there are some of uh, Woodford's investments which are so uh, preposterous that, that no one else will back them. You have to be utterly certifiable. Uh, 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 maybe a couple of people on the Elizabeth Home shareholder list, but no one sensible will. And they may well go to zero. But I think what with his bigger investments is going to be that they are all still cash guzzlers. Uh, they are all still a long way away from the stage where they could IPO, uh, with the exception of Oxford Nanopore, potentially. Uh, and that they will all have to pass the hat around again. And Woodford won't be able, but Woodford yeah, no, that, Capital Trust has point. got no money. That's and therefore, point. so Woodford walks away, and these things are worth nothing unless somebody puts in some money. But, but if somebody uh, puts it, somebody may put in some money, but they'll say, "Yeah, you were worth four hundred million at your last Neil Woodford valuation, but now, guys, is my way or the highway?" And uh, my way is that I want to put money in at fifty million. At which point, Woodford. WPCT is just diluted to oblivion. Yeah, yeah, but but my point is that that for the people there might be other existing investors alongside Woodford who want to protect their investments. But you know, without them, I think in some of them, Woodford's the only investor. These things are worthless. And if you want control of a company that owes a lot of money and needs to survive, you can get them for, if you want them. And in a lot of cases, I would suggest that people take one look at them and say, well, Woodford like this, but but in fact, no, thank you very much. I mean, who would rescue all that? What's the, um, the uh, cold fusion business. I mean, that is worthless. Nobody's going to want that. Particularly the one that has to change the laws of physics and yeah. was founded by a fraudster. Yeah. Uh, so what I'm trying to say is that the only reason for rescuing it is to protect your initial investment, which Woodford's not in a position to do. And the other guys, as I think you pointed out, who want to do it, they can do it for, for, uh, for next to nothing. Because the the choice for the management the management of the company is right either we go bust or you give us some money so these the, anyone who wants to give them a token amount of money is completely in the driving seat what i'm saying about what i've read in the press on woodford is that people do not realize quite how, how horrendous the damage can be on uh 
fire selling these assets. And I think that sooner or later, despite the fact that the FCA or whoever's in charge um, of regulating Woodford are obviously mindful of the fact that they don't want to destroy the the uh, uh, any value for shareholders, they're going to say, look, come on, you know, you haven't been selling anything. We're, we're, we're taking over now. And they will just get what they can for it. And uh, I, I don't think people have really have realized at all quite how bad, particularly in WPCT, when I've looked at some of their holdings, how many of them will go to zero or next to zero. Because these things... Of course, are like, well, WPCT is saying that if your uh, scenario is right and the equity income fund is forced into a fire sale of the unquoted assets, if that happens, it is allowed to ignore the fire sale valuation because that is an exceptional and therefore it will not need to make a similar write down in its NAV. Well, it will when it has to pay the back. It doesn't matter. Nobody believes the NAV. I mean, you know, what's the point of putting 83p up? I mean, it, they can, they, they, I mean, I don't know whether WPCT's got any sort of institutional shareholders, but, you know, if Neil Woodford gets sort of a penny for something he's paid a pound for and, and WPCT say, well, that was a forced sale, we're still batting it up at a pound. I mean, presumably most of the guys' institutions or whatever who hold it are going to sort of factor that in on a spreadsheet somewhere that, you know, that pound is worth a penny because Woodford's just dumped it at a penny and he was lucky to get that, you know. So the, the, when does the crunch come? It comes when the banks say, right, we want 150 million back, please. And they say, OK, well, we'll go and sell what we can. And they find that they can't sell it. I mean, what have they got that's liquid? They've got purple, a few purple bricks left, I think. And that's about it. Um, well, the, the big hope, of course, is Oxford Nanopore. Well, I don't know much about that. But I mean, again, all these things are going to be down rounds, aren't they? Any, any, any deals struck by Woodford to sell stuff short of putting up more money, you know, if he, if he finds a buyer, are going to be lower than the last price he paid. And any fundraisers to rescue these things that need money before Woodford's able to sell them um, will also be down rounds, obviously. So the whole thing's a sort of self-fulfilling circle. I think that the right discount that should be applied to Woodford patient capital is, is so, you know, a 70% discount at the very least. 70% discount to the stated NAV, um, which you, because you regard the stated NAV as being a total joke. Yeah. 70% of the stated NAV. So so the state, stated NAV is what, 82p? So if you paid, yeah, so 24 pence. And, and even that, I, w I wouldn't touch them if they were trading at 24 pence. But that's where you might get some people coming in and thinking, oh, looks, look, look, that looks interesting. But no way at this price. You mentioned purple bricks earlier, but you've closed your short. In fact, I'm going to out you, Lucian. You went long for a, a few days in purple bricks, didn't you? I did. Yeah, I bought them. You at, are a spiv. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I bought them back under a pound. I just saw they were strong. And it, it's a difficult one to call purple bricks because there are so many. I mean, I think that, you know, on, on a fundamental basis, purple bricks will go much lower than this. But you've got all these... Um, uh, three parties and you don't quite know what um, is going on there. I mean, I'm always a bit frightened of Tosca Fund after they took out Internet Q. And you never know what that guy Hughes is up to. I mean, he's made a right hash of something. He's, I think he must be mates with Woodford because he's got exposure to quite a few Woodford disasters. But I mean, he's not stupid, that guy. 
And I got burnt when he took out Internet Q just to save face for his private equity people. And, uh, it, what you know, what's he doing sitting on a whole load of purple bricks? Then you've got Woodford. Then you've got the Germans. And there's not, you know, between them, they've got, what, probably over 60%. So it's just dead money. The other thing is it costs 30%. The borrow on purple bricks was costing me 30%. So, it's you know, unless you think, right, it's going to go from a pound to 50p in the next month, then there's not much point just holding on to it. And it's just got stuck now around about just over, what are they now, 112. So that's what we were talking about at the beginning. I mean, in a normal market, you'd think, right, you know, let's press this. But this kind of market, it's just stopped. And you'd have thought with a Woodford overhang, they'd be a lot lower. But a lot of these things are just, uh, people are frightened to be short. And, and uh, once a thing has got more or less, you know, fallen as it should, I mean, purple bricks at three quid, two quid, well, obviously, you, you, you don't want to close it. But uh, when it starts getting a little bit marginal, um, you know, if, I don't know, the Germans took it out to save face, the Germans themselves are being bid for by KKR, aren't they? So, you know, the KKR aren't short of a bob or two. They might just think, well, you know, take out Purple Bricks at 120. They could easily, well, just say, well, get rid of your stake in the market at any price. But it's difficult to... to uh, they no need to pay one. They've no need to pay one twenty. The highest that they paid in the market uh, has been a quid, yeah. and I bet you if they bid Woodford a quid for his stock, he'd buy their hand off. That's our logic dictates that I don't disagree with you. But at the top of a market, crazy things happen, and people make you know the world is full of top of the market um, you know hubris with people overpaying. Or, you know, the Germans saying, oh, you know, we're friends with so-and-so, we'll give them a, another 10p. I agree. I think if they ask Woodford, if they bid Woodford, they can't bid for the company uh, at less than a pound, can they? Because they, you, you can't bid at less than what you paid last. But they could... That's correct. They could... You know, what, what? I don't know what 10p is on purple bricks in terms of money, but, you know, I wouldn't put... If the Germans say, OK, get it over and done with, we'll give you 110. Um, you know, it's, it's fair, they, I wish they were negotiating Brexit if they thought that way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's crazy. Yeah. They should be I'm, told, no deal no, is I mean, better I than just, a bad it's deal. A, it's a long summer, and just sitting around with bare positions where you've made a bit of money and and that, you know... It's, it doesn't really pay in this market to be totally ruthless about it. If Purple Bricks, there's news changes, I get some wind that I think this is going on. But I really can't tell what's going on. Who's going to sell to who? You know, what are Axel going to do with their stake? What's Tosca Fund going to do? He's probably working with Woodford. What's obviously at some point uh, Woodford's going to have to flog them. But who's he going to flog them to? You know, if Axel buy them, they've got a bid for the whole company. It's just not worth the hassle, Purple Bricks. It's done me very nicely. I've been saying it's a short since over four quid. Uh, and I, it's disappointing not to buy them back at 50p, but that's life, you know. What if I were to, okay, here's a really obvious short, IQE. Yes, uh, our I, friend I, Matthew I, Earl did some fantastic work, as of course did I. Um, uh, looking at all the red flags, the related party deals, the taffia. Uh, the dodgy events that go went on in 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 South Wales, uh, uh, the, the appalling track record of not generating any cash, dismal return on capital. He looked at all of that, 
here is a company. It's had a string of profits warnings. It quite clearly is running out, going to run out of banking headroom by Christmas. And it's just today appointed a new nomad and broker. No, I totally agree. I think it's I'm short of IQE. It's and it is easy to short. There's plenty to borrow. I think it's uh, I don't like using the word no brainer, but um, I think it's a slam dunk short. And I, I think the semi industry as well is is uh, living on the wing and a prayer. I mean, basically, in the profit warning, they, they, reading between the lines, they just said um, things in the first half are going to be pretty bad. But we hope in the second half, <laughs> the semi industry might improve. I mean, there's no way I think it's going to com- improve. Growth is going. All these Korean uh, Korean uh, uh, manufacturers are, are uh, profit warning like crazy. In America, they're all doing very badly. And little old IQE is just living on hope that some something might turn up in H2. And as you Clearly, rightly say, I the think they need money. Moved. I mean, they've raised, what did they raise money at? 140 pence a share? Uh, yeah, just over a year ago. Yeah, well, that's raised what 90 million quid, start, and that's all know. gone. Yeah. I mean, it's... And the, and the change of Nomad Broker is a telling. Is it, That's just... I that's, agree, yeah. They might as well have said, by the way, the bears are right. We're going to have to do a placing. So what do you do a placing at? You know, for, what's the market cap here? 400 million? I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, well, if I was Peel Hunt, I'd say, uh, you know, uh, we need 50 million quid. Uh, we'll do it at 35. Yeah. And they well, get it away. Yeah. Well, I'd probably buy them at 35. But, um, yeah, no, I agree. I think IQE is one that in this market you can be short of. Um, Woodford is, is another it, Can one. I ask you one which we, we, we had so much fun with in, um, over the years, but it seems to you seem to have rather uh, let go of it. Uh, UK oil and gas. Why is it... It's now so, it clearly demonstrated that uh, Horse Hill is not the new Saudi Arabia, uh, that uh, uh, lying Steve Sanderson was lying uh, and Dave Lenigas was uh, being exaggerating, uh, uh, doing big Lenny math. It's at best um, a mom-and-pop play at Horse Hill with no guarantee that there's going to be anything else over the rest of the wheel basin. The market cap is still 60 or 70 million quid at a penny, due to the uh, gazillions of shares that have been issued. Um, why do you just not bother? Sure, I mean, it's because obviously I've, grossly I've, overvalued. You know, I like to do one of these at a time, uh, ex, you know, oil stocks. And I haven't got one on at the moment. But, you know, it's, you know I, I said short those things at 3p and they go to 9p. I get, oh, as you say, I got, oh, you know, the social media grief, all this crap. Um, and, uh, you know, that what are they now? I've even, they're not even on my screen anymore. They're a penny. Um, they're a penny. It's just not, you know, I'm not, I've been there, done that. You know, I'm good luck to them. 60 million quid, you know, there's always, there'll be another story or people who have forgotten the last kind of Fandango um, or, you know, they'll have another story. It's, just, you know, at a penny, I'm happy. I'd shorted them at 3p with the basis of saying they'll go under a penny. And, you know, what, 18 months later, they go under a penny. But before that, they go to 9p and everyone's telling me and I'm a complete bloody idiot. And uh, I sold more, actually, at seven pence. But, you know, it's these things, are, you know, it's it's fiddly, they're fiddly short to do because get, getting the right entry point, these guys' ability to ramp, particularly Lenny Gass, who's an expert, 
is uh, very good at it. And and also the following of these people, you know, they, they, these private investors just don't give up. And um, so I, you know, it's just become a bit marginal for me. I mean, if they start running again, sure, I'd have a look at them. I'd, I'd sell them at 3p if they get back up there. But um, 180 million quid, given what we now know about Horse Hill, it's not going to happen. No, probably not. Not even Leningas could do that. And of course, Leningas is now um, promoting uh, not one, but two great cannabis plays. Yeah. Oh, incidentally, uh, talking of cannabis. Um, yeah, I mean, I have been bragging a bit about that. But um, instead of that, the cannabis to me now is the and, and, and Netflix to a degree. They're my two chips for uh, in, uh, alternatives to selling uh uh, the Wall Street, the market. Um, I, uh, the reason I'm not talking about the London market is because it's, I think, it's probably about the only market out there that looks a bit undervalued, the FTSE, I mean, and the 250, because of all this Brexit rubbish. But global markets led by Wall Street. Um, Netflix, I, I like we can understand, the, the business model stock. is broken. Sorry? Netflix, the business model is broken. Yes, and, and with cannabis, they have a wonderful geared... Uh, you know, the market goes shooting up and everyone gets a bit gung-ho on the cannabis stocks, but they've stopped doing that. So basically, the market tanks, which it hasn't done, but if it tanks, cannabis will, 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 will fall uh, much more than the market, in my opinion. Market goes up and uh, the cannabis index or the cannabis stocks will sort of straggle along behind it, you know, marking themselves up a little bit, but not as much as the market. And the same is true of Netflix now that people are beginning to kind of think, hang on a minute, you know, we've got Disney and Amazon and Apple. Uh, Amazon's already here with Prime, but we've got Apple coming along and Disney coming along. And uh, they have to spend $2 billion every year to make all this stuff, to replace, not only to keep customers happy, to replace all the stuff that... Uh, Disney is pulling from them the moment the rental agreements come up. So, you know, Nasdaq has a very good day because someone else has good earnings. Uh, I don't know who hasn't who hasn't reported earnings yet. Um, I think we've had Amazon and uh, and all the other fangs. We have Facebook, but yeah, okay. Nasdaq has a really good day. Uh, Netflix will sort of totter along with it for a few percent, but. Nasdaq has a bad day, and bang, they bang Netflix. Look at where's Netflix now? 308. Well, I said sell it at 320 only a few days ago, and that was after the 10% fall on the numbers. So, if you think the market's going to crack, which, in my opinion, it's got to, it's got to at some point. This S&P, Nasdaq, Wall Street, then the cannabis index, Netflix, rather than just boshing the uh, the the index the s p or the or, or wall street i think it's quite a well it's worked for me so far anyway it's a better do you, way do, just do you smoke cannabis lucian i not for ages no i haven't smoked it for oh probably ooh, 25 years or something but, right it's a bit you know, it's a bit different these days apparently it's very powerful yeah i, I think do you think, are there any sort of, do you, do you think at some stage, I mean, there's all this evidence about how most of the people who go around sort of um, beheading people and being schizophrenic murderers <laughs> are all uh, users of cannabis. I just, I, I do, I'm not sure that I'm quite so clear cut as David Lenny Gassin believing it's um, God's gift to the world. 
Well, one thing that I learned the other day, and I'm not quite sure, but I, I, I haven't got to the bottom of it. I must say I haven't really done too much due diligence on these cannabis stocks, except to just realise that they're barkingly uh, mad on, in terms of valuations. But one thing I discovered the other day and correct me please anyone who hears this correct me if i'm wrong is that the medical cannabis of which there's a lot of hullabaloo and there's uh, um, constitutes a lot of the rise in the cannabis stocks for the medical applications doesn't actually get you high it's it's cannabis uh part of the cannabis plant that doesn't you know mess with your mind so i rather naively thought that the whole idea was that if you're in pain or for whatever ailment you've got, you know, you basically get some cannabis and it does just the same as, you know, for recreational purposes. It kind of takes the pain away kind of thing just by, you know. Yeah, no, no, my mind. stepmother, when she was very ill, she 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 got she cashed a few joints off my stepbrother. Yeah, well, the, uh, for that, so that's what I, I just thought it was the equivalent of just sort of smoking a few joints because you feel sort of ill. But apparently for the it doesn't actually, you know, whatever they do, you in, ingested or injected with the with the medicine, whatever GW Pharma do. I don't know how you take it, but it doesn't get you high apparently. So I'm now feeling a bit sorry for all these guys with these ailments who, who it might make them better, but it doesn't get them high. Uh, anyway, well, it's not another. I'm not sure it actually makes any much evidence. It makes many people better either. But, um, but it's, isn't it supposed to sort of relax you or something? I mean, I assumed I, that it was a bit like sort of morphine. You know, that the same reason why people take morphine when they're in shock or in pain. Um, that that it kind of has benefits to, to kind of making you feel calmer or better, but I don't know. I don't. Anyway. One, one thing about cannabis is it just does strike me that there are all sorts of rogues who we've sort of found involved in other industries who are now promoting cannabis stock. The exception of David Lenigas, who obviously is just a is just a great entrepreneur, but quite a lot of the other people are outright rogues and shameless promoters. Well, all of, yeah, but they're a bit late in the day. If they're yeah. starting it now, I mean, I think cannabis is going to become sort of yesterday's story fairly soon. I mean, looking at some of these charts, um, you know, what the Afria and Tilray and, uh, you know, they're all on the back foot now. And they, oh, they've got a lot further to fall. But but, you know, you might argue, well, look at Bitcoin. We thought Bitcoin was dead and buried when it goes below 4000 and that has this monster rally. So maybe cannabis will do that. But I don't think so. I, don't, I think We've seen that. I mean, if I think cannabis is what at least fifty percent off the top now, but you know, it start. I think it's got a hell of a lot further to fall because there's a lot of these valuations are still completely barking mad. I mean, if you look at any kind of, I'm just looking Afria now at six bucks. Well, it's been to ten, I think, and you know, the market cap make would make you sort of fall off a chair if you had a look at it and compared it with earnings. But um, yeah, I'm just looking at it now, but. Yeah, I think they've got further to fall, and I think there are. It's I think shorting. I've chosen the IG index, but I'm sure there are other index. Or you see, yeah, 1.5 billion now, Afria, which is they they've been over 12 bucks, so it's been a three billion pound company, and they haven't got any earnings, you know, and they haven't the revenue <laughs> revenue. I think a couple of million, and just Lucy, unbelievable. You're just a dinosaur. It's going to be different this time. But I mean, I don't know why. Why suddenly? Is it because a lot more? I mean, the number of people who take cannabis is uh, uh, not going to increase. I don't think. And I mean, if you, there's not enough dope smokers around, in my opinion, to uh, justify the collective market cap of the cannabis industry. 
and you'll probably still get the illegal trade going on, you know, just so, so you'll go illegal to avoid the taxes. So it's pretty easy stuff to grow. So, you know, the, the, the legal channels will say, look, I'm terribly sorry, but you've got to pay whatever it is, a kilo or an ounce or whatever, because, uh, you know, there's 20 percent tax on this. And then you'll still have your backstreet dealer who comes and says, look, this is much better gear and it's tax free. So, <laughs> so uh, I don't think they're going to take all the illegal trade. No. OK, Lucien, on that note, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. We will catch up again for another podcast fairly shortly. OK, thanks, Tom. Wow. Well, that was quite an interview with Lucian. I don't mind saying that we'd actually scheduled it to be much, much shorter, but we just kept on having things to say to each other. Lucian and I, of course, go back for many, many years. We've watched so many matches of football together at Upton Park and a couple at the London Stadium. Yeah, we have that sad habit in common of supporting West Ham. Lucian is the godfather of my son, Joshua. We're very good friends, uh, so we can talk about things as well as stocks and shares, uh, but we can talk about these things forever. If you enjoyed that, well, you won't have to wait too long for Lucian to make another appearance on Share Profits Radio. We're planning a one-company special uh, discussing just one company on the AIM market, which we believe to be monumentally overvalued and utterly drowning in red flags. Maybe you can guess which that company is. Anyhow, we won't keep you in suspense for too long. I'd hope to record that podcast within the next two or three weeks. Uh, it could be as soon as next week. Uh, and uh, tune in and you'll find out that company. Uh, Lucian's been doing an awful lot of homework uh, on uh, this matter. Uh, and I think you'll find his research is pretty startling. Of course, bears do tend to do more homework than the bulls. I was discussing... Uh, this with uh, a fellow from the BBC uh, today uh, who's looking to do a programme uh, on a matter which I've done some pretty impressive journalism on over the past two or three years and was explaining to him why when a company uh, can be seen to have a very large short interest uh, you can get statistics from the FCA. They're not complete, but they're, they're a good guide in that the FCA only aggregates short positions which individually are worth more than 0.5% of the issued share capital of any one company. So it misses out all those uh, many, many short positions which are much smaller, individual punters with accounts at IG index. But it gives you an idea of which companies are being most heavily shorted. Whenever you have a collapse uh, in the share price of a high-profile company on the AIM casino or maybe on the main market, you always get a story in the Sunday Times uh, or the Sunday Telegraph, uh, limp dick newspapers that they are, saying, short sellers have made 150 million quid on the collapse of XYZ. 300 million quid on the collapse of XYZ. Last weekend in the Sunday papers, it was on the share price collapse in ASOS after its most recent uh, profits warning. But it shouldn't be news to people that short sellers have made these trades uh, and made these profits. You can go to the FCA's website and you can see uh, which stocks are most heavily shorted, uh, both on AIM and the main market. Uh, 
But anyhow, the point I was making to the uh, fella from the BBC, uh, which was not really uh, critical to what we were discussing, but it was interesting nonetheless, uh, was that short sellers have to do their homework far better than the bulls. Uh, that is uh, because, it, theoretically, if you buy a stock, your losses are capped at 100%. Uh, your gains are potentially unlimited. If you're short a stock, it's the other way around. And therefore, if you're not much good at shorting, or if you do positions just because you take a short position just because someone told you to, which you read on the LSE Asylum, uh, you will pretty soon get cleaned out. Those who are shorting and have been making money from shorting for many, many years uh, are by definition really very good. And you almost always find when you have some of these great collapses, that it is the bears who have really done their homework, sell side analysts, the people who work for the brokerage houses, they're only interested in ch checking cor chasing corporate mandates. Their research is always slanted anyway. Uh, but they never really do the in-depth research. So it's always the bears who do far better homework. One of Lucien's great uh, uh, um, uh, claims to fame, which ended his own career as a stockbroker, is a little company called Panandean Resources. I know Panandean Resources well. Uh, it's an Irish oil company. It's run by my friend John Teeling, uh, the only aimlisted CEO who's seen me with my clothes off. Yes, we, we, we used to play a bit of rugby together, veterans rugby for Clontarf in Dublin. Anyhow, uh, back in, I think it was 1994, 1993, uh, Palandayan was drilling a well, Chipare, somewhere in South America. Everyone got, everyone got terribly, terribly excited about it. Uh, I tipped shares. Uh, not because I knew Teeling, just because I tipped them. I think it was before I knew Teeling terribly well. I tipped them at 8p. Uh, and uh, very fortuitously told readers of, at that point, it was the London Evening Standard, so I guess it must have been 1994, uh, to take profits at something like 70 or 80p. But they went up to £1.30. They were being aggressively promoted uh, by private investors. Uh, uh, Tim Freeborn of the Daily Mail was a shareholder and was also writing incredibly bullish material about it. All the excitement was about Chapari. Anyhow, Lucian Myers uh, was a stockbroker at the time, and he had some initiative. So he managed to get the telephone number of the drilling site at Chapari, wherever it was in South America. And he calls up and he gets this nice young lady who goes, no, no, the directors, they have all gone home. The well has been abandoned. Uh, Lucian said, well, thank you very much. Pleasure talking to you. And started shorting the hell out of the stock. By the time the directors landed at Heathrow Airport after an overnight flight, uh, they arrived uh, to find that the share price was down to 60p. That was entirely Lucian. Uh, the directors, uh, it was before the er uh, era of mobile phones, but they had pages. Uh, they found these pages were bleeping heavily. And the stock exchange wondering what on earth was going on. Perhaps the company should put out an announcement. Things didn't move so speedily in those days, so the announcement had to wait a few hours, by which time uh, Lucian had done terribly well. Anyhow, uh, what he did was completely legal. It wasn't insider dealing, since no one made him an insider. 
Uh, it was just good research, the sort of stuff that bears should do, the sort of stuff that we should all do, whether we're bulls or bears. Uh, needless to say, the stock exchange got involved. The uh, forerunner of the uh, FCA, the FSA, got involved. Lucian's career uh, life as a regulated stockbroker was made such hell. Uh, that he went out on his own, uh, able to do these things without having to worry about all this regulatory nonsense. He did nothing wrong. He did great research. Uh, and, uh, in fact, some of the best research you'll ever do uh, and showed some initiative. No one else was actually doing that. But other people could have saved money or made money on the short. Had they put the phone call in, no one else thought about it. They were just too lazy. Anyhow, uh, it was good having Lucian on the show. We'll have him back in, in a little while. As I said, there's no CEOs on the show this week because the business model of Share Profits Radio is not to take money from uh, companies uh, to then do soft interviews with their CEOs, uh, asking whether the CEO has a schlonger, which is enormous or ginormous, and how cheap their shares are. If you want that sort of shit, go over to listen to Justin the Clown at Vox Markets. We're able to put out these podcasts thanks to the sponsorship of Riverfork Global Capital, which is the leading provider of funding to junior listed companies on the AIM Casino. I may not really agree that some of these companies should exist. Uh, I think uh, uh, the AIM Casino would be a lot better as a market if a lot of the shit at the bottom went bust. Uh, but there's clearly a desire for it. People like speculating in these companies uh, and people believe they deserve to be refinanced. And Riverfort provides that sort of funding. It's not just, as people might say, death spiral funding. No, there's all sorts of funding instruments, including straight loans, asset back loans. But there's also convertible debt, royalty and straight equity financing. Uh, so it provides a range of funding. If you are a CEO or a finance director of a company on the AIM Casino, Riverfort will be holding a series of masterclasses, both online and in person, to help you understand how to access and optimise funding for, you, for your companies. Please contact info at riverfortcapital.com if you want more information. So thanks to Riverfort for sponsoring this. Um, Lucian is generally... Uh, a bear. He does occasionally go long, as you discovered in that interview. My next guest has gone short in the past, but these days he doesn't do it. He's just a long-only merchant. Now, my second guest today is Chris Three Brains Bailey, uh, the most intellectually gifted of the writers at Share Profits, a former city analyst, or is it fund manager, Chris? I like to claim both, Tom, but, you know, whatever works. The, a city boy. Uh, why did you leave, stop being a city boy, apart from the fact that they're all wankers? Yeah, well, obviously, I, I worked that one out and uh, decided to um, sort of, uh, you know, exit into a different different sphere. You know, the, the basic reason was quite simple. I actually really enjoyed my time managing money, looking at companies, all that sort of malarkey for, for many years, you know, well, well in excess of 15 years. But I got to the point where it was very clear that the, that the world of fund management was changing. And the world I loved, where basically people gave me responsibility, they gave me opportunities 
was to show whatever pathetic skills I had on offer in order to make their portfolios outperform at an institutional level and whatever else, that, that game was changing. And one of my bosses said to me very clearly, we love what you do, but we'd love you to be a very important member on our 20-person committee in order to manage this group of funds going forward, the group of funds that previously I had run, you know, with, with a team, obviously, but as the lead person on that team and everything else. And that was wholly kind of demotivating. And, and I thought about it, and I thought, I just don't need this hassle anymore. You know, there is everything that I love about you know, looking at companies, appraising investment opportunities, all of that stuff, it was clearly going to be ripped away. And we were going to go into a mass group think where essentially we would get a worst outcome. So I left, I left with the funds kicking around the first quartile. And today, not that I look at these things, of course, you know, they're <coughs> kicking around the, the, the fourth quartile. And um, it, it's groupthink, Tom. That, that's what it is. And that's what I hate. And so I'm, I'm, I decided just to leave and with absolutely zero plan in order to try and work out um, how I could sort of use any, any pathetic intellectual gifts I have um, in, in the world of investment management. And um, I've actually discovered that in today's world where you know, information is, is available. There's too much information. It's all about interpretation and the value of that. You know, there is so much I can do in different ways, which actually is much more rewarding than being, you know, as you would put it, a city boy in a very conventional sense. You say there's too much information. Um, is that what? In what sense do you think there's too much information about companies? Well, in the sense that there's too much coming out about absolutely everything. You know, you go onto a search engine and there is way too much noise in terms of uh, political developments, in terms of sector level developments. And of course, the companies themselves can be churning out lots of interesting stuff, but actually ultimately quite, you know, worthless potentially, things which actually can just contribute to the background noise. The, the skill of the analyst or the fund manager is actually to cut through that and try to work out what is important. And I think that skill potentially has, uh, the, the, the kind of the barriers to it have kind of gone up and up over the over the last few years, just because of the sheer level of information we're, we're, that's thrown at us. You know, you go, I know you love Twitter like I love Twitter, but you go on to there and there's just a torrent of information on every angle, every view you'd ever you'd ever like to think about, and you know people coming onto it new must think, oh my goodness, what do I do with it? What do I think about? And before you know it, all you're doing is you're just grabbing the last view or opinion you heard and extrapolating that and taking that as your view. When actually I realised that what we've got to do is get back to the old-fashioned way of looking at things. And actually, to do it yourself, to you know, to... I'm rather nodding as you say this. Isn't there also a thing about that the old-fashioned way when when you and I were young? I suspect I was young a lot long before you were young. But what is to read company statements? A primary source of information is the RNS, the actual you know uh, results, the annual report, uh, and that is your primary source. Uh, and everything else is based upon that. Yeah, now this is it. And this is the crux of it, Tom. You know, 
primary information, you know, we're taught as, as, as investors, as historians, as everything else, that primary information has a real value to it. But the trouble is we all get seduced. Everybody, you know, in, in any way involved in the investment industry or, or related can easily get seduced by um, the lure of, of the brokerage view, the kind of the, 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 the view you get on, on in a newspaper or some other online article or something else. It comes from presentations as well. Yeah, absolutely. Any form of spin that's out there, something where there's an agenda, there's an opinion, you know, even pieces that I write, you know, I, I would say to people, always get out there and look at it yourself. You know, I've given you my best shot, but you may have a different view when you actually look at the data, look at the comments, look at the, the real proper numbers. And it's funny, I, as, as you know, I, I do a bit of work now with one of my old universities, and I'm, I've been desperately trying to get these really smart young people who want to become the future analysts and fund managers, trying to get them out of sort of the dusty textbooks or kind of the very kind of CFA way of doing it, which is, you know, have a wonderful Excel spreadsheet revved up, stick your numbers in, churn the wheel, and boom, out comes the result. Try to get them to sort of do things such as uh, go and speak with the company, listen to the conference call, read the RNS statement. You know, these are things which, when I certainly was was younger, was taught to me. But we've kind of lost it over the last twenty odd years. Um, I think bizarrely, in today's information heavy world, this is your edge as as an investor, be it institutionally or be it as a private investor, is to get back to the actual underlying data and comments and ultimately work out, do you trust the vision being fostered upon you by, by company management or not? But you, you used to talk about getting sort of kick the tyres, and I know I, I, I know you actually went out and kicked some Tesla tyres, which uh, <laughs> is very good they didn't spontaneously combust on you. Uh, Tesla being sort of case in point, it's all very well saying to speak to the company, but... Um, they're all pathological liars. Yeah, no, th this is true, right? We all know that everyone's got an agenda. However, when, I mean, Tesla's a great example. So I went there, you know, I wouldn't suggest necessarily, you know, everybody flies to California, obviously, as in the case for Tesla or XYZ locations, for whatever investment you're thinking about. But, you know, within your own realm and your own capabilities, to actually go and see something with your own eyes, you pick up so much more. For example, sure, the Tesla people were talking about this, that and the other. However, you know, because I've been on quite a few of these sorts of trips, I look for sort of the gaps in the, in the comments or the analysis the impressions people's comments made on me, or just watching how other people reacted, you know, what the sort of ambiance of the office was like, or something like that. You pick up so many soft kind of insights, which ultimately give you that sort of feel about how a company is. Because the reality is, you know, even in the investments we absolutely love or really trust, um, we can't be there all the time. You know, we've got management teams doing potentially lunatic things at all times, you know, right now. But we've ultimately got to say, do we trust these people? Do they have procedures? Do they have a structure, an ethos, a culture, which actually we can buy into? Um, or at least an, an underlying honesty that we can say, right, if things do hit the fan, then actually we know they're going to respond in a tell us about it and are going to try and fix it because they're suitably incentivized and, and ultimately fundamentally people trying to you know, build shareholder value. And with Tesla, patently, uh, the product's not as good as they're saying. 
and the culture is all over the place. And, you know, those sorts of things I picked up from actually being there and sitting in one of the cars and, you know, nearly losing my life in one of those their cars. Not really. You know, there was a, a, a minor a minor incident where, where I felt a bit unsafe. And but to me, that was massively insightful. And, you know, I, I could have spent 100 hours pouring through Tesla, this, that, or the other on the internet. And it wouldn't have made that impression that I got from the one hour plus I spent at, um, at their offices. With Tesla, which is one thing is, is quite interesting, is that there are some people out there who you and I, even you, Chris, their Zulu principle-like knowledge of the Tesla mm. accounts, I know that there will be, uh, you know, we see it in smaller companies here, the sort of mad bulls refuse to countenance what the bears say. But some of the experts who really drilled into that, they must be really sad people because they obviously don't have a life. But their depth of knowledge and depth of understanding is pretty impressive. Yeah, it, Ignoring it is, bears yeah. below that much is a yeah, dangerous yeah. thing, isn't it? it, it it is. I mean, I think generally in the world, you've always got a guard against knowing more and more about less and less. But I think where you know a lot about something, a lot, a lot of detail and relevance about something, and you're, you're saying, you're pointing out the flaws in some spin doctor or CEO's vision, then, yeah, these people should be listened to. And the thing about the stock market is we know that uh, the share prices are not a good guide to ultimate reality in the sense that there's a lot of spin and hope, but every single fraud or massive um, disappointment um, it initially starts um, often from the cusp of, of great excitement, you know, over-exuberance, which then rolls inexorably into great pessimism over the intervening one or two years or something. And um, because many of these stories, of course, are ultimately spun very aggressively and, you know, it's very hard for people to sort of change their mindset that actually something which they really had huge faith in can actually be completely rotten, absolutely useless, you know, a, a complete non-starter in terms of a longer-term investment. But, you know, that, that's the way it goes. I mean, that's the wonderful thing about the market. You know, ultimately, um, the, the numbers are the numbers, but that, that role of, of psychology, it, it, can, it can help and hurt you uh, accordingly. And, and that's personally what I find interesting, is trying to work out what the average person thinks and whether that is right or wrong. Is, um, you attempt to outperform the market with your investments, yet uh, on share profits, you write largely about FTSE 100, maybe FTSE 350 mm. shares. Why aren't you using your superior analysis to go to the place where you could really make a difference because there is no research out there? Smaller company shares. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I guess it's uh, the answer is really at two levels. Number one is um, uh, I'm obviously a global investor. So for me, my, my kind of my backyard is, you're absolutely right, in the UK, FTSE 350, but then, you know, large swathes of the S&P 500, NASDAQ, various other things in Europe, Asia, whatever else. So I've got quite a broad park that I play in. And, it, you know, it is it is a funny thing where people think that large caps, you can't, outperform or beat markets or whatever. Uh, the reality is, even in the most best research companies out there, there are still material share price volatility shifts. Uh, obviously, on, on average, you potentially have lower 
lower levels of volatility with large caps. I mean, sometimes some of them do test that concept. But what, what I find is, on a personally, on a risk-reward basis, they, they kind of suit me. Um, I'm not looking to be gangbusters, make hundreds of percent or whatever else, potentially lose, you know, large swathes of my capital. You know, for me, if, if, if I could sort of compound out at something which was nicely double-digit, but not, you know, busting um, uh, the charts too much beyond that, I'd be extremely happy because I know that that's how wealth accrues over time. It's that steady accumulation rather than, you know, something which just bursts onto the scene immediately. Um, if you do but, 14% a year, you double your money in five years, don't you? Right. It's something like, absolutely. And, you know, to me, that's, that's attractive. No, it never works out that way. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I have plenty of volatility in my stock picks, plenty of bad calls and everything else. However, the concept that I'm, I'm actually trying to avoid the absolute shockers and trying to sort of right-hand skew it into a few more winners, you know, still holds, as it probably does for all investors. I just find that that kind of world of larger cap, sort of, you know, one billion market cap plus sort of, sort of companies, I understand it. I've, I've traded it for a long time. There's plenty of choice. And, whoa, there are some massive anomalies out there in terms of sentiment and reality and change and big themes and stuff like that. It's more than enough to keep me excited. And because I'm not, if you like, so fearful of a very big share price move, either up or down, I invest my capital accordingly too. So in that sense, um, when, I'm, when I'm buying from my own account, obviously fully disclosed as relevant as always, um, you know, I, I, I do take those, make those choices at those pinch points where actually I do choose to du double my, my bet you know, because I've got the confidence that actually I sort of understand it. I'm not going to lose my shirt if it gets goes horribly wrong, but hopefully I do all right in, in the wider scheme of things. You talk about big themes there. Were you, uh, a, were you or are you attempted, uh, tempted at any stage to jump on board either the Bitcoin or, or cannabis or <laughs> blockchain or, or cannabis bandwagons? Oh, they are goodness. perceived as big themes. Mm. Yeah, no, they are. And yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty. You know, you look back on the returns that you've seen in in, in big themes like this, or you know, many other myriad of themes we could cite over the last ten or thirty years or something, and you think to yourself, oh, darn it, you know, I, I should have jumped into it a long time back. I think the reality is blockchain. I, I struck. I, I understand the broad concept, but I struggle with the specifics. I think there are some technological insights required to really work out where people can make money. I think far easier is to work out how it can potentially transform other businesses through the application and use of a technology like blockchain. For example banks or, you know, something like, for example, I'll tell you something very boring. You know, I admit I bought a, a big chunk of IBM late last year, you know, big in the sense of the context of my portfolio, you know, obviously micro small relative to IBM's market cap. Um, and, you know, IBM is the world's most boring company, you know, big blue, you know, wadiwar, etc. But my observation is, um, despite the fact it hasn't grown revenues forever, they actually are changing a bit. And something like blockchain, they have some quite interesting exposures there. So I'm not saying that's the reason why IBM shares are up 33% or whatever it is this year, but it certainly helps that people kind of have kind of moved from, oh my God, this is just in terminal decline to, 
well, maybe there could be a sort of a cash generative future there and, and everything else. That, that's the kind of anomaly and sort of interaction with the big theme that I like. Um, cannabis, I mean, you know, I'll state it publicly. I, 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 have ne- I mean, I've never even smoked a cigarette. I wouldn't even, you know, know anything about the cannabis industry. Are you in the city? So we just assume you're a cokehead. No, I mean, I, I can assure you, Tom, you know, I'm... <laughs> You know, in this public, most public of forums, I have never, ever, you know, done anything even remotely akin to that. I'm the world's most boring person. But, you know, weirdly... No wonder you had to leave the city. They must have thought you were a real square peg in a round hole. I, I didn't fit in clearly, you know, I'm not only criticising the group thing, but all then all the extracurricular activities that obviously <laughs> don't happen, um, you know, I'm obviously criticising those, so I'm a complete loser at all, at all levels. But, you know, the reality is, um, bizarrely, despite, you know, the fact that I don't smoke or drink or in, in, imbued such substances or whatever else... You don't else, drink either. I don't drink either, no. And, you know, it's, you know, it's just a personal thing, Tom. You know, this is why, you know, I managed to, you know, still look reasonable at the age of 45. But anyway, um, uh, but it doesn't stop me investing in all of these sort of areas. You know, I am famously, I think Malcolm and I even, you know, Malcolm's a lovely guy, but even he and I exchange them, you know, torrid words on imperial brands or something. You know, I, I do invest in, in alcohol, alcohol stocks, beverage stocks. Um, done all right in them, actually, despite knowing clearly nothing about it. And um, cannabis, I haven't um, made any purchases yet, but I will admit, live again in this most public of forums, that I have signed up for some conference later this year on UK cannabis opportunities. Um, I'm slightly worried. I don't know whether I should go in a gas mask or something in order to protect my cannabis virginity or something. But um, apart from that, um, I think it's quite fascinating because what I was saying you didn't inhale it worked for was no. it Clinton or was that no yeah. I don't really don't want to go into that tip. but um, is uh, is is um do I think about Monica Lewinsky in hey I just don't know where it's all going that with that one but uh, it, 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 the fact that there's conferences about it the fact that so much capital has been thrown at it as a sector um doesn't that make you think that there is there isn't this is a bubble isn't it yeah, I, I agree. At the small cap level, absolutely. But the thing is, big business is seeing the opportunity. And they're seeing the opportunity because of the weakness of humans. That we, you know, I was reading an article about how it's become now de rigueur among a certain sort of type of ordinary, ordinary square American citizens, you know, to have their, their various pot experiences, pot parties, hand around the joint and whatever else. It's now, you know, perfectly normal and in many cases perfectly legal and clearly the gene is out the bottle um you know the 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 smoke is everywhere and and this thing is just going to push forward i look at things i understand things such as the tobacco industry and related and i can see how the distribution the the pricing power and the cash flow generation can can accrue what you need though is is the ability to as i say to distribute it in in a manner to to a deeper population and that's what big business is good at. So to me, it's quite interesting that a company such as um, Constellation Brands, you know, a big, big US um, a beverages company, you know, has has a decent sized stake in a, in a cannabis business. You know, to me, that makes perfect sense. You know, we've seen some some tentative efforts by some of the, t- the of the tobacco names to get involved as well. This is where I think the money will be made because. What will happen is those businesses, which perhaps are perceived in a certain way, then suddenly have this sort of growth, the angle there, which they can actually exploit. Um, In the meantime, 
you know, the point, the part, point that you're making, Tom, all of these sort of super small kind of local growers and everything else who don't have distribution, don't have differentiated product. Um, if they're even half good, they'll be consolidated up. But most of them, as, as you kind of Im imply, will, will, will be complete losers. And, you know, 99, 100% of the market cap, if they are listed, will be wiped out because, as you say, of that too much capital in there. But it will go the same way of, uh, as uh, I suspect 90% uh, of the crowdfunded craft breweries, which are uh, 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 starting in every other London street. Away right. from the away from the fact. Mm. Sorry, Chris, you were saying. Yeah, I was going to say, but you know, take craft brewery. But you know, at the big picture level, you look at sort of um, people like Anheuser Busch, their biggest beer company in the world. Yeah, I've done very well on those shares in the last few months because actually they've been riding that wave among other corporate initiatives. So for me, this is why I get excited about large caps because there are themes that can actually play out in such names in, in an attractive manner. But you know, as I say, just trying to know a little bit about everything. That's that's what I find. Um, you know, it's it, I guess I want to know a lot about a lot. That that's that's my kind of my credo. And um, now I'm liberated from, you know, tedious 1,800 meetings a week or whatever I did in the city. Um, you know, the gene is out of the bottle and it's brilliant. That, that's what I love about this investing world. You can never know even remotely everything, but hopefully you look for a few anomalies and, you know, interesting points that you can actually then put to work in, in a few hopefully high quality, um, you know, shared suggestions and recommendations. In uh, uh, early, earlier in this uh, 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 podcast, I was talking to Lucian Myers, who was of the view that UK equities, uh, he obviously is a bear, uh, he takes the view that global equities look pretty overvalued, but oddly the one market where he sees some value, possibly because of Brexit concerns, possibly because we have clownish political leadership, which is about to get more clownish, um, uh, is Britain. Do you take the view yeah. that British equities are... Well, the, the view of those great minds, Lucian Myers and Neil Woodford, that British equities are um, are, are cheap relative to non-UK equities. I'm just thinking what kind of panel that would be. Lucian, Neil, me, and, and you chairing it. I think that would be a great panel, wouldn't it? For um, One just, just, retired fund just, manager, <laughs> one failed stockbroker, and uh, one failed fund manager, me, and one soon-to-be retired failed fund manager, Neil Woodford, yes. What a what what a what a carve up that would be, but um, I think that'd be really interesting. Look, worryingly, I, I kind of I'm going to join the groupthink here, despite obviously you know talking negatively about groupthink earlier in this uh, chat. Um, it's funny. I was looking yesterday at um, the European stock markets. You know, the world's clearly most um, slow growth, boring area of the world. Get this: the UK market in aggregate is valued at its biggest discount to the European markets since 2006. Now, even when you adjust for boring things such as oil shares, which obviously are quite important in London, um, kind of dulling that, that, that UK number a little bit, that, that's too low. And it's for all the reasons you've suggested, Tom, you know, Brexit concerns, political leadership, wadi wire, et cetera. Um, but to me, that sounds anomalous. It's funny, I was reading an article um, in, in, in the Deadwood Press, you know, I, I do occasionally dive into it just for a bit of light amusement. But, you know, they were um, musing about some comments from um, uh, one broker who was identifying that there were plenty of UK companies on sale at the moment, you know, for all the reasons that we've talked about. 
and, and that there'll be much more corporate action, takeovers and related if, if this situation persists for, for much longer. And actually, I completely agree with that. Um, you know, again, it comes back down to anomalies and the opportunities from anomalies. I think the UK is anomalously cheap, but you've got to filter the crud from the good stuff. And, and that, you know, plays into the role of the active fund manager. You know, obviously, Neil's challenge has been that he's clearly picked the, uh, quite a few wrong uns, uh, <laughs> apart, from, apart from all of his other, you know, shenanigans, which obviously you and many others, Nigel, and many others have been uh, most, most interested and amusing about for the last couple of years. But clearly, thematically, is, you know, when I look at it, stock picker to stock picker, he clearly backed the wrong horses, right? There were plenty of other things he could have done if he had a different mindset. But, you know, that's, that's, that's what, you know, by the by. When I look at the UK, there is, I think, a really interesting subsector of UK stocks, UK listed stocks, often with some global exposures, some, some, some with very global exposures, some maybe a little bit more UK oriented, which are interesting, but you've got to pick and choose. And that's the nice thing about, you know, if you like the genie being out of the bottle, I'm, I'm no longer particularly biased or required to sort of think about indices or benchmarks. I can kind of pick and choose as I see fit. So even though I do sort of, as you say, predominantly look at, let's say, within the UK market, FTSE 350, um, you know, I think the real value is in the mix, not the um, not the sort of the, the, the broader index per se. So UK, UK, UK picks, I think, most interesting, but pick and choose carefully. But you say if you can choose carefully, I mean, that surely there are some complete minefields in the UK. Uh, I think about the levels of consumer debt, uh, and uh, that clearly has to play out going forward. That the, the, There's got to be at some stage, individuals have to uh, reduce their, ba- uh, de- deal with their balance sheets. There's some statistics that the increase in GDP over the past five or six years exactly tracks the increase in levels of personal debt. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think in, in last week's show, you were talking about, about this issue. And quite correctly, I think it's if there's one issue that's going to hold back investor returns over the next decade, it's going to be debt. Because we've all got too much debt at a consumer level in most countries. Government's got too much debt. Businesses in some cases are a bit more prudent, but in other cases, absolutely not. And it's obviously all been inspired by these, you know, now ludicrously low interest rates combined with obviously QE excitements and everything else. So, you know, there is nothing which reduces equity value more efficiently or effectively than high debt levels. And, you know, that that day of reckoning is, is still yet to really come, despite some, you know, good efforts at various points over, over the last 20 years. So... I think that that's right, and this is why I would never, I, mean, I wouldn't have bought a tracker fund ever just for kind of um, a sort of thematic, you know, I love active management kind of reasons. I think today you should not touch a passive fund, a tracker fund, because clearly, patently, you've got to pick and choose. And um, because, as you say, of that high debt backdrop aligned with, you know, evolving political and social and other issues which are impacting stocks in different ways. You know, for goodness sake, know what you're investing in and why, rather than just, you know, plowing into something because it looks nominally cheap. Um, or even worse, you know, some ridiculous talking head like myself seems to like it, you know, plough into it because um, uh, you actually genuinely think there's some some prospect there. There's some anomaly. There's some reason why you actually think prospectively this thing could re-rate and the market's missing it for whatever reason. When you say the day of reckoning, for you, is that an if or a when? 
Um, it, it's got to be um, it's got to be a when, because you know I, I am a student of history. You know, my uh, obviously economics was always my favourite subject. My second favourite subject was history, and you know the two kind of kind of sit quite well together. When I look back over time, ultimately it always ends in a mess. There's always a period of um, where, where a default or a period of inflation, or sometimes both. And uh, we haven't ultimately bucked that cycle. We've just learned ways to maybe push it out a little bit, control it a bit, for goodness sake, even statistically monitor it a bit better. Um, but ultimately, you can't buck these things. Um, clearly, we've got a lot of vested interest now in, in neither of those events happening. Clearly, a bit of inflation, a bit more inflation than we than, than what we've become used to, would would be quite uh, socially divisive. Um, and, you know, obviously things like defaults and whatever would be um, deeply problematic. Um, but ultimately, you can only spin it out for so long. And yet, as you can see by the ever more creative way central banks are undertaking things like QE policies, negative interest rate policies, various other stimulus policies, they're sort of getting desperate. The better news is that the world keeps spinning and companies, when you look through times of strife and problems, whilst clearly transitorily the shares take a huge whack, they persist. They persist because of brands, because of good people, because of distribution systems, because of an ultimate human need for a, a product or a, a service. And that's what people should be focusing on. And despite the complete <coughs> incompetence of many politicians, there are some good business people out there and entrepreneurs who actually have got their heads screwed on. That's why I'd much rather trust them with my money rather than, you know, or putting it in the bank or something else. Is, is, is in terms of saying that there are good business people out there, there are good business people out there, but you can have someone who is the greatest business person on earth. Is, uh, reading your writings on share profits, uh, I would say you would be somewhat sceptical about whether the greatest business person on earth uh, could deliver a massive return on uh, my capital were I were he to be running a house builder, for instance, mm. or yeah, a maybe. commercial property fund. Yes, yes, because as Buffett said, you know, you want um, uh, you want a business to be able to be, to be to be run by an idiot because at some point it probably will be. You know, it's much better that way around than than the other way, and um, I think that's true. Um, and this is where, if you like. Uh, you know, my history and things like like relative fund management, where you're trying to be benchmarks, you know, kicks in a bit because my first filter would be, right, you look for the one of the company within the crud sector, which actually is run a bit better for whatever reason, be it good people or strategy or, or whatnot. But in the more absolute world where you can pick and choose investments as you see fit, Absolutely. This is why you've got to spend, you might be the most dyed-in-the-wall stock picker out there, but you've got to spend 10, 20, 30% of your time on big picture stuff. And, you know, boringly, I do, you know, I, I do love macro. I, I do love thinking about it. I always have done, even when I was managing, you know, whatever billion quid plus in global equities, I still spend, you know, 20, 30% of my time on global macro, which many people didn't understand. But I said, look, Unless you understand the world you live in, um, you can't put things into context. And if, even for private investors listening who are managing, you know, maybe a relatively small amount of money, their own money themselves, spend time thinking about the world because it just makes your, your own investment decisions much more efficient. And as you say, Tom, you know, I, I've written negatively about house builders for a while now. And, you know, I, I have that thematic strategic view that they are not a place you want to be in for the next little while, let's say, foreseeable future. 
and and that makes my life a lot easier because I don't need to sort of, oh my goodness, you know, maybe I should be thinking about it or not. I don't. I sort of cut that out and start thinking about things where actually I can make a case for it based on that fusion of some top-down big picture stuff linking up with, you know, lots of bottom-up work, pacing through the primary research stuff, listening to the conference calls, reading through the reports and all that other stuff that you need to do as an investor. You know, when you get that fusion, that both of those things coming together, and then even better, you have it, you have an anomaly, an overt anomaly where Mr. Market is saying, oh my goodness, you know, this is not a good idea. We don't like this stock or this sector. That's when you're ticking all those boxes, you know, you should be getting the most excited and, and having a decent sized position. So, yeah, absolutely. What are your, but what, what are you, before we wrap up, what are your three biggest UK positions? Um, my three biggest UK positions, oh, this is a good one. Um, the um, So I would say um, up until I disclosed the fact that I was making a material top slice of it on share profits last week, we, you know, we didn't, we didn't rehearse this, this is absolutely true. Burberry was actually my biggest UK position, UK listed position. What's um, the attraction I, of Burberry? Well, there were two reasons, actually. You're Tom, more of a fashion guru than I, but I, I thought that was just for you know, that, That's right. Well, obviously, um, uh, very funny, and this is absolutely true story. Um, when I left, you know, when I stopped being a city boy, um, Burberry, about a month or two afterwards, appointed Christopher Bailey as their new chief creative officer. This is absolutely true. And I got two or three calls from people who will remain nameless because it's clearly deeply embarrassing who actually genuinely asked me whether that was me. Um, so, you know, at that point, I decided that if Burberry was smart enough to actually hire somebody with my name as their chief creative designer, and actually, you know, I understand the Chinese love this sort of thing, they're pushing into Asia, social media, whatever. Um, so I actually bought the stock at a not dissimilar time, and, and it's done rather well. I've just literally actually haven't halved it yet. Um, I've given share profits readers enough time to kind of do it themselves, but I, I will do. So that currently is number one of my UK positions. And that's um, a play on, on, on the bad taste of the growing Asian market. Basically, yes. And the fact that Burberry is, is lowly valued versus things like LVMH and other stuff I don't really understand in this sort of the broader luxury sphere. So there's a bit of relative value. And as you say, Tom, they've got over a third of their sales in Asia and they're great on social media. And that's kind of a good combination. Um, Imperial Brands is next up. So going from luxury to tobacco, um, I, I've written a number of times on the fact that I think the share is cheap, uh, misunderstood, cash generative and all of you that. You and Neil Woodford again. Great minds so, think alike. Neil, Neil's selling, as I understand it. Oh, Not because he wants to. Not because he wants to. I'm buying it because I can. So, you know, Neil and me are kind of polar opposite in that sense, as on many other aspects, I guess. Um, you know, I don't have any whatever else. Um, so, yeah, Burberry and, and Imperial Brands are, are, are one and two. Uh, why is it, one, Imperial Brands, why? Is it just the yield? I mean, the, the yield's yeah, pretty good. Um, the yield is good. And obviously, they've just, just evolved the dividend policy a little bit, but without cutting the dividend. But, you know, they're not going to, you know, link themselves up to this 10% a year increase, which is clearly bonkers. Um, look, to me, it's all about the fact that, um, smoking is not going away. They've got some good brands. They've got some good global exposures. Um, it's a cash generative business, which is too cheap. Um, and it's a bit... there, there has to be a yield premium for a business which ultimately is killing its customers. Yeah, there is. And, and obviously you're getting it. You know, you've got a yield which is 
depending on how you want to look it, look at it, uh, 50% above the UK market average. Uh, actually, a little bit more if you want to look at it in in, in certain ways as well. Um, but bottom line is... Uh, Historically, what have tobacco stocks traded as a premium to the UK market average? Well, well here's where tobacco is interesting, because, of course, it goes from, from feast to famine. So back in 2000, you had a similar discount, if you want to look at it in terms of dividend premium or kind of valuation discount to the UK market. And obviously, from the year 2000, they had, as, as Neil Woodford would be well aware, you know, a decade plus of outperformance because people bought into globalization, rise of emerging market consumption, pricing power, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, so they backed up um, to those sorts of levels now. So I would say if you take a big view of it, you're at sort of what I would regard as a sort of genuinely um, sort of bottom of the range kind of discounts at the moment. Clearly, what, what could throw it off is regime shift. And a regime shift would be even tougher um, sort of anti-tobacco, anti-e-cigarette sort of legislation, or a massive change in consumption patterns. Now, obviously, we're potentially seeing both. Uh, the latter is occurring as people go to these vaping products and e-cigarettes and everything else. But my observation is IMPS is actually well positioned in that sense. And um, I think they can handle it. I think they've got the right portfolio, product profile, etc. It's not the only global tobacco set, uh, investment I've got. I've also got uh, an equivalently big holding in Philip Morris International, US listed, which actually I think has got a very interesting position in next generation um, tobacco technology. So, you know, this is sort of the kind of the counterpoint. This is what you get in a portfolio. You've got sort of, you know, luxury at one end. I've got, you know, obviously my, my biggest holding, full disclosure, has been on share profits many times, is, is Barrett Gold, the old Rand Gold. They, they bought Rand Gold, which obviously was my loved up top position for many, many years. So I've got gold, gold at the top. So I've got gold, luxury, uh, and tobacco at the top. And then just below that, I've got um, EasyJet, which I think, again, is, is, is a good business, which is too cheap. So yeah, EasyJet would be my number three UK uh, position. What's the attraction of EasyJet? Well, you Are know, there I, no Brexit worries? Yeah, no, this is, this is the concern. Because I'm always looking for an anomaly, Tom, I guess. I'm always looking for something to say... Well, Malcolm Stacey says that, uh, you know, apart from the super gonorrhea and the player, the the uh, the fact that we'll have to sort of uh, stockpile cucumbers, uh, the plane's going to fall out of the sky. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I mean, Malcolm could be you're right. Obviously, you're not going to suffer the super gonorrhea. We know that. You're a clean living well, boy, but you might be worried about your cucumbers. <laughs> The um, indeed, um, oh, dear me, we're back to Monica Lewinsky again, aren't we? Um, the um, the uh, no, we won't, we definitely won't go there. Um, EasyJet, no yeah, no, um, EasyJet is it just feels um, too cheap given everything. Um, sure, there are some Brexit concerns, I think they've done a lot of preparation in terms of their their, their legislative bases and everything else. You know, there, there will be some clearly transitory hassles if you get the hardest of hard Brexit and borders start closing up. There is no doubt about that. But you look at the numbers, which, you know, the latest update came out just over a week ago. It, it's trading on, on on 10 times profits, which I think is is not that high. It's chucking out a 4% plus dividend yield. Um, they're clearly doing something which has some resonance with the population. And, and, it, and in a growing sense, they go to proper airports. Sure, there's, there's ways we can criticise them in terms of 
bad customer service. But in the wider scheme of things, actually, they're a lot better than the rest of their peers. I think it's just a sensible business. And um, it's even after a, a recent very nice bounce, you know, thank you very much. Um, uh, there, there's still, for, for my mind, a couple of quid still in it. So, you know, to go from 11 quid to 13 plus quid, that that's, to me is kind of attractive. Pick up a yield on a way. Um, and then at 13 quid, I'll probably have a think about it and maybe, you know, let that fly off in a different direction and pick something else up. So, yeah, you know, it's it's just keeping flexible. You know, I've got to start thinking about what I'm going to do with my, my, my Burberry riches now that, you know, I'm no longer the creative director of the company and, uh, and everything else. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll see. You know, there, there's plenty of interesting things out there. I'm genuinely excited about the investment outlook, um, even if, you know, we've got crazy politicians and everything else going on in the world. You know, there are things to be doing and it's got to be better than getting 0.0001% in the bank. Uh, okay, two final questions. One on that on that point. Do you have a, any waiting in cash? Uh, I have in my in my SIP, which is predominantly how I invest nowadays. Boringly, I have. I think it's about seven percent cash at the moment, which I guess will go up to uh, something double digit when I finally get the top slicer out on Burberry. Um, so yeah, that's the only cash I have for me. That, that is just the waiting opportunities, and we're in the middle of a results season. You know, I can see I can see me spending that quite happily if the right opportunities come up. So, yeah, that that's I do have a little bit of cash, but I would say, is it particularly different from normal? No. And finally, do you ever go short? Um, <laughs> I you know, for nearer the start of my career, I did spend six years at um, actually longer than that within the broader hedge fund industry, but specifically six years at a European long short fund. And so, um, institutionally, I have gone short. Um, I I guess I, I, in theory, I can do it. To be honest, I find with the broad palette that I've got, I, I actually keep it generally to just um, going long individual stocks that I find interesting and attractive. And then if I need some some cover or protection, then I, I would probably look to short indices. Um, you, you know, have I'm, identified I mean, on share profits. Hmm, you, you've been right. Dignity, for instance, yeah. uh, a, a stock that was incredibly highly rated and was, not to put it uh, uh, mince my words, was ripping off its customers. And the yes. government's going to stop it ripping off its customers. Yes, yes, no, that's right. And you know, Metro Bank was, was a good one as well in terms of spotting that as a as a complete house of um, house of cards and everything else. Um, and, and you know, my, my most recent one, you know, I'm getting my teeth into St James's Place, which I'm convinced is just again, you know, a couple of quid too expensive minimum. Um, so you know, I guess so James is based another case of that, that old thing. If you rip off your customers, it, you can get, make great returns for a while, but in the end, it's not a good business model. Yeah, this is it precisely. And you know, when you've got that, I come back to the word anomaly, and you know, listeners should correctly view me as kind of an anomaly investor because that's what it's all about. It's when people, one, a group of people think one thing, but the reality is somewhat different. And I look at St James's Place, and the anomaly is people love it. But actually, the fees are blooming high. You know, for the for the St James's Place Woodford equivalent fund to underperform, underperform Woodford's own in-house offering, despite not having the small cap and unlisted bits of crud, is absolutely shocking. You know, that just tells you that St James's Place is just. You know, the fees are just accruing on top of fees, and it's just an absolute mess. And quite correctly, they're getting they're getting um, sounded out about it. So, um, indeed, I think people are waking up to that. 
Sure, the business has got other attributes to it. Clearly, it makes a billion quid a year, for goodness sake, in profit. But, um, you know, back to the old famous book of the 1920s or was it 30s, you know, when um, where are the customers' yachts? You know, that, that's my immediate thought on that business. You know, you know where are the St. James's places customers' yachts? If you had to be short of one stock, Dignity, Metro Bank, St. James's Place, which would it be? Right. So Dignity, I think it's broadly getting there in terms of everything. So it wouldn't be that one. Metro Bank's had, had the miraculous range of shockers already. So I think we're, we're largely through that process, but still it's going lower. Uh, so it'd have to be St. James's Place, which clearly hasn't cracked yet. So I'm, I'm targeting at least two quid lower. Hasn't yet pushed below 10 quid. So let's call it eight quid. That's my target. Okay, on that cheery note, Chris, thank you very much, and uh, we'll speak again soon. Pleasure. Well, wow, again, wow. I knew Chris Bailey was a very clever chap. I didn't know he was such a complete and utter fucking Puritan. No drinking, no drugs. No swearing? What does the guy do? What vices does he have? He's happily married as well. A man with no vices. Such people always worry me somewhat. Anyhow, I hope you enjoyed this second edition of Share Profits Radio. Uh, If you can't wait seven days for edition number three, and you like what I have to say, you like uh, what I say about shares, I do do a daily bearcast over on Share Profits. Uh, you have to pay to access the Bearcast, but it's only five ninety nine a month. And for that, you get not only seven Bearcasts a week, sometimes there are eight or nine, sometimes I do bonus Bearcasts if I have something particularly interesting to say. But you also get uh, at least nine other articles every single day of the week, including weekends. Uh, so it works out to something like 2p per article to join Share Profits. And you get access to all those articles, uh, scoops, uh, news of breaking placings, fraud exposés, a series of companies I've reported to the FRC for dodgy accounts, a lot of stuff on Neil Woodford. It's all very entertaining, high-quality stuff. Uh, And as I say, if you can't wait seven days for the next edition of Share Profits Radio, sign up to uh, Share Profits and uh, make do with your daily bear casts. Uh, there'll be one out uh, very shortly. Anyhow, it's been a pleasure, uh, as always. Well, I say, as always, pleasure as it was last week uh, in recording Share Profits Radio brought to you from Wales by 30 Yards. I shall be back next week with the third issue of Share Profits Radio brought to you uh, partly from Wales by 30 Yards, partly, I suspect, from Greece. I'll speak to you then. <laughs>